Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today, we'll explore the area of privately held businesses and discuss trends in the space, how valuation and transactions have changed um, in this COVID-19 environment, what we can expect after COVID-19, and areas that business owners should consider as part of a sale or transaction. Our discussion today will include perspectives from a panel of experts that are have been intimately involved in this space from very different angles, uh, investment banking, private equity, and accounting. Joining me today uh, are also my colleagues, Jason Kane and Will Martin, who represent our Center for Wealth Planning and our commercial bank at Boston Private. Thanks, guys. Let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Jack Mayer, Managing Director at Capstone Headwaters. Jack, uh, give us a quick snapshot uh, of your background. I wanted to thank the folks from Boston Private for hosting this um, uh, podcast. A uh, little bit about my background. I've been in the investment banking for about 30 years. For the last 10 years, I've been head of investment banking at Capstone Headwaters. Prior to that, I had run the global middle market M&A business at both uh, Credit Suisse and DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, Genrat. My focus has been on the middle market throughout my career. Uh, for purposes of this call, my definition of middle market is $500 million in transaction value and below. Thanks, Jack. Our next panelist is Matt Kies, partner at Gemini Investors. Uh, Matt, give us a quick uh, overview of your experience. Sure. Uh, I have been with Gemini for 20 years investing in what we consider the lower end of the middle market, typically companies with five to $50 million of revenue, so small but established and profitable businesses. We are generalists in terms of the businesses we invest in, in terms of which industries we invest all across the United States, uh, but do all of our investing here domestically. Uh, we are based just outside of Boston um, and have made about 150 such investments in these small established companies over the last uh, 25 years. Our current portfolio is just over 50 companies today. Uh, we've raised six private equity funds over that time frame and be uh, entering the market shortly with uh, raising our, our seventh fund, sticking with the same same strategy and segment of the market going forward. Thanks, man. And uh, our third panelist is John Moore, partner at PKF O'Connor Davies. John, uh, give us some uh, highlights of your background and, and talk to us about how you get involved into doing what you are with the middle market businesses today. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I've basically have spent my entire career in uh, public accounting. Um, first half of it was really spent with uh, big four firms but have always focused on working with family business and businesses and entrepreneurs. Um, most of those other businesses were international in flavor. Um, and then for the last 10 years, have been focused on middle market M&A, uh, more with family-owned businesses, and, and, and clearly in the space that uh, Jack had mentioned at the uh, under $500 million in investment value. Um, all host of, of industries um, you know, across the middle market but I would say, you know, most in particular is, is really just dealing with, with family-owned businesses or, you know, businesses that are founder-run, uh, multi-generational type businesses. And PKF O'Connor Davies, we're a regional accounting firm in the northeast of the U.S. And, um, 
you know, are, are really just happy to be participating today. And thank you for putting this together. Oh, thanks, John. Well, uh, for the discussion today, we're going to break it into th three different parts. Uh, talk about what was going on before uh, the pandemic, kind of the things that we're experiencing today during COVID-19, and then uh, expectations and thoughts about afterwards. So uh, hopefully that provides a little bit of a framework for that. And uh, Jack, let's start with you on the before COVID piece. You know, walk us through what conditions look like for you know, acquiring or selling, you know, closely held businesses in your um, part of the market at the end of the year, beginning of this year? I mean, what did it look like? Was sure. it a seller's market? Yeah, Eddie, it was uh, most definitely a seller's market for, and it has had been for you know, the better part of 17, 18, 19. Um, going into this year, we started off very strong, but when COVID uh, uh, appeared on the scene, uh, and certainly after the shutdown in mid-March, um, the market sort of seized up and activity dropped meaningfully um, while people tried to understand the implications of COVID, what it meant for their businesses, what it meant for the financing markets, et cetera. So we went from a very robust environment uh, which was a seller's market, to a much more cautious and uncertain market. And I think we're starting to move back toward a better market as we move into the third quarter here. Uh, at least that's what we're seeing on our end, uh, particularly in some sectors that haven't been affected negatively by COVID. Thanks, Jack. And Matt, from a private equity point of view, what would it look like on from your end? Sure. I, I think uh, I would agree with Jack completely. <clears throat> I think from our perspective at Gemini, I think most private equity firms would, would say that it was very much a seller's market. Uh, we certainly benefited from that in, you know, selling or, you know, doing partial recapitalizations of our portfolio companies over the last couple of years at, at quite attractive values. We also experienced it on the flip side as a buyer, where it was very difficult to buy quality companies, even at the <clears throat> couple million dollar of cash flow level at reasonable prices. The processes were difficult. The competition was brutal. And to get something at a reasonable value, we found you had to come either very to the very, very, very low end of the market or, you know, make some sacrifices and take on some risks that you wouldn't ordinarily do just to be able to get some some capital to work. And Jonathan, were there particular sectors uh, from your perspective that you saw that were uh, doing well uh, going into this crisis or, or, or particular uh, laggards out there and in your world. Yeah, I think when you're looking at sort of enterprise value to EBITDA multiples, you know, obviously technology um, and healthcare services, I would say were the, the, the high flyers or the highest multiples coming into uh, 2020 with, you know, Mac manufacturing and distribution being more of the flat or, or laggers, which it was interesting then too, when once COVID happened, you sort of saw this flip where, you know, suddenly demand for door-to-door -door type delivery services, you know, skyrocketed. So now, 
you know, distribution companies that were able to participate in that phenomenon, you see a big spike in, in activity there, where conversely then the healthcare services dropped off significantly due to whether, you know, decline in preventative or elective treatment. So, um, you know, those were definitely some things that, uh, that we've seen. Great. Well, let's, uh, you know, wind things forward and, and talk about today, you know, with this, this pandemic period, COVID period that we're dealing with today. I'll turn it over to my colleague, Will, um, to, to go over this part. Sure. Thanks, Ed. So, Matt, you, one of the things you just touched on a, a moment ago is that Gemini is sort of actively involved as a buyer, as a seller, and as a, as a holder of portfolio companies. And I'd be curious to know, uh, from that perspective, as somebody that's actively involved in the marketplace, how, how has the economic uncertainty created by the pandemic impacted the market, kind of generally and specifically? If there are any broad trends that you're seeing to begin, that you're seeing uh, beginning to emerge relating to appetite for transactions, how businesses are being valued, uh, access to leverage, deal structure, et cetera. Sure, happy to. Will um, I think I would almost break the kind of pandemic period the last six months in, into a few different time periods. I'd say from March to May, almost everyone we dealt with, and certainly internally, everyone was focused on you know working through challenges in their existing portfolio, and the new deals came to really a screeching halt. Um, so uh, whether it be lenders, investors, investment bankers, you know, at all, I think everyone was just trying to work through whatever crises they might be, be dealing with. Starting maybe in June, we started to see kind of people poke their heads out a bit and companies maybe that were in a process and had weathered the storm okay start to emerge and re-engage in selling or raising capital. Um, we have seen certainly that deal prices have softened a bit. I wouldn't say we have a, a great large sample to measure that on, in part due to lenders really pulling back from where they were, whether it's sitting on the sidelines completely or uh, greatly <clears throat> making more strict criteria under which they're willing to lend. And I think as a result of that, there's just been a lot fewer players lending into the middle market, and those that have been willing to do so have really raised the bar in terms of what they're willing to do in terms of the, the, the qualitative and quantitative metrics, and, or if they're willing to do it at all. I'd say on discuss, the discussions we have gotten into on um, negotiating deals with sellers, topics and structures such as earnouts, other contingent creative ways to have the purchase price fluctuate in these uncertain times have certainly crept back into discussions where the last few years it was uh, those were much less prevalent. But that's great. Thanks, Matt. Jack, uh, following on that, with respect to lower middle market M&A, are you seeing that deals are getting done? Um, have you seen sellers reduce prices? Uh, what are you seeing sort of in terms of how are people getting deals done? Uh, can you give us some insight on that? Sure. Um, so deals definitely are getting done. Um, and uh, per Matt's comments, sellers and their advisors and the buyers as well have all become a little bit more creative in terms of structuring transactions in light of the uh, the times 
that we're in. I, I will say, however, that there are certain businesses which continue to trade, or certain businesses in, in specific industries that continue to trade at very fulsome multiples. Um, as an example, uh, in addition to those um, uh, cited door-to-door know, -door delivery businesses, um, we have a very large educational services and training uh, practice, and the multiples being paid for companies with exposure to anything that looks like distance learning um, are through the roof. Um, I would say uh, further, you know, more generally, for companies that have performed well through uh, this period of time and have good management teams and are in sectors that look promising, uh, there is also a return to you know, pretty heavy levels of valuation. So deals are most definitely getting done um, and where uh, required or where necessary, which is frequently, uh, people are employing creative measures like uh, those mentioned by Matt or announced, et cetera, in order to uh, get deals done and you know, bridge the, the value gap that may exist where sellers' expectations haven't adjusted as rapidly as uh, uh, market conditions would imply they, they should. So th that's really, that's very helpful and interesting. I, I wonder if I can, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Jonathan and Matt and, and follow on this a little bit, but just, you mentioned educational services. Are there any other specific sectors, let's say, uh, in the market that were surprising or that are uh, performing well relative to um, others in terms of getting deals done and seeing less disruption from your perspective, Jack? So I would say a couple of things, too. I mean, on the telecom side, uh, you know, financial services, anything that may have been deemed an essential business or, as was mentioned, where, you know, there was a, a neutral to positive effect on operating results and then those companies that maybe have a good visibility into, into the future, um, you know, those valuations have really held up and, um, you know, have been able to kind of see through and continue to process those those deals. And again, like the door-to-door -door delivery type things, um, you know, well, meanwhile, any other businesses that have been slow to rebound, you know, get, again, continues to be flat. Or if there's little visibility into the near-term uh, performance, you know, those are the, the ones that are having a much more, you know, of a challenge getting to the next step. Great. Thanks, Matt. Matt, anything that, that you'd want to add on that in terms of industries that you're seeing uh, uh, one way or the other? Sure. Yeah, we've we've seen a real surge in, in e-commerce businesses. So whether those be, you know, uh, consumable personal care products or jewelry or home goods, not, not necessarily things that people are buying more of due to the pandemic, but really just a channel shift from traditional retail to to e-commerce and a number of businesses that have had, you know, really benefited from that. I think the challenge has been just sorting through how much of that will stick post-COVID. 
you know, another area we, we've seen perform quite well and some companies come to market is uh, as, as difficult as food service and restaurants and hospitality have been, anything sold through the grocery channel you know, has done quite well. Uh, people are shopping you know, in, in large amounts and uh, experimenting a bit more at home, eating all their meals at home and have seen uh, you know, those companies quite, quite healthy and have seen some, some robust processes in the, the, the food through grocery channel. That's great. Th thank you very much. Um, sort of a, a, a twist on that, uh, Jack, maybe you could comment on um, how uh, buyers, sellers, those involved in providing valuations are, are balancing and determining what, what the real long-term impacts of the pandemic on companies' revenues and expenses might be versus what are more short-term impacts uh, on either growth or contraction and how you're determining what addbacks are reasonable and determining a baseline uh, from which to determine fair, fair value for a business. Uh, just some comments around, around how, uh, how that's playing out so far. Sure, uh, there are a couple of questions in there and I'll, I'll try to um, pick them off one by one. Um, I would say that just generally, my, my own point of view is that this, uh, uh, let's call it a period of uh, this disruption and value diminution. Um, uh, I, I believe people view it to be you know, short term in the scheme of things. Um, clearly, you know, when and if a vaccine becomes available, I believe that will uh, mitigate some of the concerns around uh, businesses' uh, performance. But you know, as has been pointed out, there are businesses that have continued to perform very well throughout uh, these uncertain times. And, um, I, I, and in those cases, not only have they continued to perform well, but the expectation is that going forward, once we're through these difficult times, they will continue to perform well. I read a piece the other day that suggested, and this isn't, uh, startling news, I don't think, anybody, but this suggested that consumer chain, uh, behavior has probably changed permanently, certainly at the margin and, and perhaps more fundamentally. So I, I think the, the point of what I was reading was that uh, for those businesses that have performed well during this period, the expectation would be that they will continue to be accorded you know, pretty fulsome values going forward. For those businesses that haven't performed well, um, uh, the, the jury is still out. You know, will airlines, as an example, ever return to a, a level of normalcy? Will hotels and restaurants ever return to the kind of robust levels of activity we saw pre-COVID? Um, because the, the thinking is that travel, business travel in particular, will um, never get back to the levels we had seen previously, given the adaptation of technologies like Zoom and Skype and other uh, technologies that allow people to engage and conduct in business um, without having to jump on an airplane or go spend the night in a hotel. 
I'll give you a further example, uh, which harkens back to your earlier question about, you know, are deals getting done? Buyers and sellers, financiers, uh, lawyers, accountants, all of the deal market participants have been incredibly resourceful when it comes to moving processes forward and getting deals done. As an example, we just signed a definitive agreement um, where we were representing the seller, where we didn't have one in-person meeting. And we were able to accomplish that by having management meetings and discussions via Zoom, and where we had to provide a tour of the facilities, we had the senior operations manager put a go cam on a helmet and walk through the facilities and describe what the viewer was seeing. So uh, the, the point to all of that is people have adapted and um, because of, of the adaptability and resourcefulness, deals are still getting done. And um, I think we've, we've um, come around to accepting this new way of doing business. And I think it's here to stay. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's extremely interesting. And I think I, I had read that similar I think I had read that same article as you are, and I think that's an interesting thing to see how it plays out. Jonathan, um, to you, on uh, how are you finding the private financing markets um, currently? How, how are you seeing things play out in the private financing markets? Well, we're seeing things um, beginning to, to open back up. Obviously, for a while there, there was so much uncertainty in terms of, of how businesses were being affected, which, you know, businesses could endure, um, what were the impacts going to be on cash flow. Now that um, there is a little bit more clarity in terms of, of where, you know, banks or businesses stand, um, you know, seeing some more willingness to step into the market. But yet the multiples, the leverage multiples are, are not as high as what they might be used to. So really seeing uh, more deals being closed or talked about with an additional seller financing component. Uh, some of our clients are just putting in more equity, um, maybe structuring it a little bit differently in terms of just straight common, um, but getting a little bit more creative in terms of, of how the, the investment is structured just to get the deal closed. Um, also seeing, you know, more willingness on the you know the buyer side and the seller side to take non-controlling interests in companies, um, this gives the owner some liquidity, maybe to get the benefit of the advice or the reputation of you know the family office or private equity firm that might be looking to work with them. Uh, they can now work with an established payer, player and maybe get some of the benefit of that knowledge, um, and then perhaps be better positioned for you know, down the road for a full liquidity event. So, you know, those conversations are now becoming, you know, a bigger part of the overall, you know, financing and investing conversation. That's great. Thank you. And I think I'd like to, I'd like to have Jack, maybe you follow up on this and Matt as well. I'd like to get uh, you guys, both of your perspectives on the same topic. So Jack, why don't you chime in and, and then Matt will go to you on that same thing. Um, yeah, I, I would just echo um, a comment just made. Um, it, it's 
it's been interesting to see, but um, we have worked on a number of situations uh, recently where owners, uh, families uh, who own businesses have uh, concluded that um, partial liquidity today is okay with a view toward um, some future transaction where there may be full or certainly majority liquidity. Both what we've seen is that both uh, lenders and uh, buyers have become very uh, flexible and creative in trying to meet the demands of uh, or the needs of sellers and families who own businesses. And if you take a step back and you look at the, the demographics that uh, we have, there are a tremendous number of businesses that are owned by baby boomers. And I've read estimates that there's anywhere from seven to 12 trillion, that's with a T, of uh, value businesses that will change hands in the next decade. So what we have today are business owners who have been thinking about liquidity, perhaps for the first couple of years, might have planned on going to the market this year, but because of the challenges in this market, have elected for some sort of partial liquidity as opposed to full liquidity. So we're seeing we're seeing more of that, and um, I, I would say also in addition to the, the demographic uh, influences we're seeing on the market, there still remains a tremendous amount of private equity, what we call dry powder, unused capital, that needs to be put to work in uh, either buying or recapitalizing recapitalizing businesses. So I think this whole COVID thing is, is temporary in nature, and I, I do believe we'll see um, a busier fourth quarter. And again, if there's a vaccine developed, I think conditions are in place for a pretty decent 2021. Can I, can I, interrupt, um, can I interrupt for a sec? This is Jason. Um, how is, we've got this backlog, people have been sitting on the sidelines, uh, and we have this election ahead of us where one of the candidates is talking about doubling um, the capital gains tax to 39.6%. Uh, How do you guys uh, see that playing out at the end of the year uh, if, in fact, there is a, uh, a Democrat in office in the Senate controlled uh, by the Democrat Party? Do you see that as a stumbling block for uh, business owners? Well, this is John. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe go first. You know, we've seen this before where um, there was going to be a significant change to the tax environment, and that did cause um, a surge in deal activity and pressure to get deals closed before the end of the year to lock in, um, you know, at one tax rate. And so, I mean, it is definitely conceivable, and I've had some other discussions with people, business owners, saying, you know, I want to do something before the election before, so I can at least know, um, you know, what I'm doing. So I think any year that there's an election is always a, a, a difficult year for M&A, just due to the uncertainty and, and M&A not, you know, liking uncertainty per se. Um, but I think that could definitely be a factor. 
Yeah, this is Matt. Uh, <clears throat> we have certainly in in past uh, changes in administration with potential significant tax changes seen that drive some uh, seller activity to try to capture those gains at, at lower rates, and you know, often created uh, you know so, some good opportunities for us on the buy side. I think what sellers are going to have to weigh this time is they may. If they're trying to capitalize on the lower rates, what the trade-off might be, depending on how disrupted their business was this year. Even if you say, hey, it's it's not a business that benefited from COVID, it's not one that got shut down due to COVID, you know, restaurants, hospitality, et cetera, but it's it's somewhere in the vast middle. And maybe they're down 10, 20% just due to kind of general disruption. <clears throat> you know, how how do you weigh that against lower tax rates? Uh, we've we not seen anyone kind of racing to market with the stated reason of getting in under tax rate increases, but uh, we, we suspect we will see some of it partially offset by, by perhaps some, some weaker results. That's great. Th thank you both. Uh, Matt, I want to I circle back to you uh, on, what, on something. So, as a holder of, of portfolio companies um, that has bad lending relationships with banks, I'm curious if you could give us some insight on how lenders are, are reacting overall uh, to what has happened, uh, how you're finding them, uh, if you're finding them to be flexible, and, and um, just sort of how that relationship is working in the market right now. Sure. I, I think as, as Will knows, you know, I think we have always prioritized partnering with the right people, whether it be co-investors, lenders, management teams, sellers, et cetera. And I think that's really proven critical in these times as you try to work through challenging situations. Uh, we've been quite pleased overall that almost all of our partners, broadly defined, uh, have been quite cooperative and flexible and really taking the long view that applying additional pressure from the lender's seat in these timeframes when the business is having trouble of its own is not going to do anyone any good. And I'd say the vast majority of the lenders we've worked with have um, provided debt service relief, covenant relief, and really looked to you know, work together to get to the other side. Oftentimes, it comes with some additional reporting and cash flow forecasting and We've taken the view that that's all, all just fine to work together to get to just some, some better conditions. I'd say the few exceptions we've had seem to be driven by situations um, the lender themselves are experiencing. Perhaps they had a portfolio full of uh, companies in industries that have been largely shut down and you know just have some you know a large number of credits that are you know dramatically out of compliance with no path to get back into them. And I'd say in those situations, we have seen a few lenders trying to, even if the company we're invested in is is healthy or has a path to work through, those lenders have, in, in a few instances, applied a great deal of pressure and in, in kind of calling around and trying to figure out where that's coming from. It's, it's often been directly related to the rest of their portfolio and, and not necessarily the situation we had um, we had that particular lender in one of our portfolio companies. Yeah, that's interesting. Hope that's not Boston Private. Obviously, we, we treat you well. But uh, 
I'll, I'll appreciate that feedback. And, and uh, Jonathan, I think I'm going to, I'm going to switch to you and, and, and ask you, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of middle market and in particular lower middle market businesses have taken advantage of a lot of the government backed financial programs that were out there to help carry through challenging periods, uh, i.e. PPP, SBA, idle, uh, et cetera. Uh, I wonder if you could give us some insight on what impact those programs are having on deal flow and valuations, if any, um, and, you know, have they slowed the process and, and, and just what impact are they having probably? Yeah, I think it's a good question because I think in some respects, the availability of those programs has maybe delayed a decision um, that is going to inevitably result in some type of liquidity event anyway, but maybe it just delayed or deferred, um, you know, a business owner making that decision because these funds became available. Uh, I think from a, a valuation perspective, you know, it's pretty easy to see um, or to identify what these funds were or how they were used. And so, I don't perceive any necessarily impact on valuation per se um, or on perception, but I think it's ultimately going to be uh, the challenge if, if a deal is going to be taking place, why a company is, is still sort of in possession of these funds, if you will. Um, you know, one of the challenges is that many banks are just now opening up their portals for forgiveness, and there are still questions in terms of ultimately obtaining forgiveness. And so what happens if a deal, you know, closes and you've not, a business has not received a formal forgiveness letter yet? So then it becomes a challenge of making sure, okay, where are the funds, you know, was the entity eligible in the first place to receive the funds? Then were the funds used for their intended purpose? Um, you know, will they qualify for forgiveness later on? And then, okay, in the context of a deal, how do you deal with that? Maybe, you know, are there holdbacks? How long are there holdbacks? If there have been some deferrals, because some of the provisions of the CARE Act, uh, CARES Act have provided provisions for deferral of payroll taxes. You know, again, are these debt-like items? Are these working capital items? And so I think it's just going to create just an additional, you know, uh, challenge or, or, or factor that just has to be uh, thoroughly vetted when it comes to, you know, deciding in terms of what's going to happen with these obligations and, and how do you deal with them in the context of an agreement. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, Matt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to you again and, and, and ask you, are, are you starting to see how are private equity firms positioned currently to invest uh, in, in sort of still uncertain market conditions. Can you give us some insight on that? Sure. I, I think in, you know, in this, these uncertain times and in, in past chapters like this, I think most private equity firms are, are well positioned <clears throat> to capitalize on, on a more reasonable uh, buyer market if, if they so choose. So I, I think there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, dry powder on the sidelines in private equity firms. I think what we've seen although it's only been a short time here, is that um, despite having a lot of capital, some firms feel some pressure or have the comfort of putting it to work and being creative in terms of how to mitigate risk in these chopping, choppy times. 
uh, and and others just sit on the sidelines and wait it out and just aren't comfortable with the current um, combination of uncertainties here. I mean, we have we have COVID, we have the election, you know, and some 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 real lack of clarity in terms of which industries will or won't come back. So I, I would suspect just the quantity of private equity firms bidding on any <clears throat> any opportunity will be down somewhat meaningfully uh, from from where it was just you know six six or nine months ago. I do think it's a you know a good opportunity to invest. We we view it that way. We're certainly actively uh, looking at new investments and. You know, finding quality companies, even if they have a, a few bumps and bruises, uh, you know, have found it to be a good time to invest uh, in in past situations. Uh, obviously, there's there aren't there aren't any quite like this one, but in, in past down markets, we've made some some good investments, and uh, we'll continue to try to do so. This time. That's great, thanks, Jack. I, I want to turn to you. Sort of a similar question: Are you finding are you seeing that there are opportunities to find value uh, that are starting to emerge as a result of uh, what's happened during the, the pandemic? Yeah, I think there there clearly are opportunities to find uh, value uh, because of the pandemic. There are you know instances where, as I said before, owners have been thinking about selling for several years, and I think they've just reached the point where. You know, they, they want or need to sell perhaps because of health reasons or management succession issues. And, um, you know, they're going to be penalized a, a bit if their businesses have suffered from uh, this COVID period, but they're willing to take it because of the uncertainty going forward with respect to COVID and the election and uh, tax and regulatory changes that could come about. So yes, there definitely are uh, value opportunities out there for uh, both uh, private equity buyers and, and corporate buyers. All right, that's great, thank you. Uh, Jonathan, I think maybe I'll have my last question to you. Are, are you seeing a shift at all in business owner priorities uh, or objectives when it comes to the sales process as a result of this at all? I mean, I think in some respects, almost echoing what Jack just said in, in terms of his comment, it, it, it depends on where they are in in maybe their their life cycle of of what they're trying to achieve with the business or what their personal situation is or how adversely or how are they impacted by COVID and and I think for some it is okay. Let me just get through this and and sell. Um, you know, I'm ready and it's time and others are still, okay, we've weathered the storm, and what can we do to better position our, our, our company for the future? Or how do I still you know, keep you know, some legacy here in terms of, of what I've spent you know, my life investing in and developing and, and preserving, whether it's for my employees or for the next generation of, of family. So I think if anything, it's just maybe you know, really um, you know, kind of just could force that conversation to the forefront more so. Great, great. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks, Will. Um, all right, let's uh, let's kind of shift to a world post-pandemic and, and what that looks like 
um, from your end. Maybe, you know, on the inside, Jack, you talked about this, that, you know, you think there might be a shift in how we do business, less travel, less in-person meetings. I mean, how does that really work uh, for due diligence? I mean, is that a new normal for you and your clients? I mean, you mentioned that you gave an example, uh, but do you think that's going to stick? Yeah, I do, um, Eddie. Uh, and, and it may not stick 100%, but I, I do think going forward, um, there will be fewer dollars spent on business travel um, because of the broad acceptance of things like Zoom uh, and Skype. Uh, there, there will always be instances where an in-person meeting is, is necessary because of uh, some diligence uh, requirement. But I see processes being run more differently going forward, um, specifically uh, more time uh, or less time rather devoted to in-person management presentations. And you know, there's a couple of reasons for it. One, because it, it, it has worked just fine. But two, if you think about the number of people who sometimes have to attend a management presentation, you may have bankers, you may have lawyers, you may have private equity uh, buyers, you may have uh, operating partners at the private equity firm, sell-side banker, buy-side banker, you know, gathering all of those people together to attend a meeting in one room can be, you know, challenging. In the past, we've held meetings where people have dialed in um, if they were unable to make a meeting in person. So I think going forward, um, there'll be uh, less of a requirement to jump on planes and attend meetings in person, and I don't think it will change the um, the tenor of conversations. We used to say or think as sell-side advisors, well, gee whiz, they sent a junior partner to the meeting, not even the, the partner who would be in charge of this asset if they were uh, interested or able to buy it. They didn't send their other you know, high-priced hourly uh, consultants or lawyers. You know, that, that's a reflection of their interest or lack of interest in in the company, but I just think people are going to be less prone to travel going forward because we found out that it's just not necessary. Oh, thanks, Jack. Um, Matt, in terms of a demand and and for deals, uh, you talked about this a little bit, uh, you know, at this time. Do you see a, a, any kind of a pent up demand for for deals to get done now that there's a little bit more clarity, or or, or are we going to? punt that to post-election? Yeah, I, I, I think we will see some pent-up demand. It's, you know, been a short enough period. It's it's hard to have any concrete data on that yet. But I guess a few people have mentioned, you know, as people that were, have been thinking about it for a long time may now say, boy, you never know what can happen out there. And while things are somewhat stable or stabilizing, let me see if I can get some type of liquidity event done, even if it's the minority recap or, you know, not, not the full signal, as we talked about earlier. Um, you know, so I see some sellers in those situations, uh, probably a, a surge for the investment bankers that there are either conversations happening in the background and preparation for 
processes uh, that have not yet launched certainly see that. And, and on the flip side, I think you'll see a lot of private equity firms that have been um, sitting on the sidelines and you know ready ready to kind of pounce and get some capital to work because they get behind their investment plan. So I do think as things normalize from from both the buyer and the seller standpoint, there'll be some 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 pent up demand, and you know we'll, we'll hopefully you know yield a uh, a more normal marketplace. Thanks, Matt. Uh, you know, uh, John. You know, from from your end, you 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 see a lot of. Uh, these tra transactions come through and you see teams that have done it better and some that have uh, done it, uh, you know, less so. What, what have you seen are, are some of those best practices for, for firms that are looking to position for uh, a, a transaction after uh, we get out of this uh, COVID world? Sure. I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, maybe prior to COVID, a lot of maybe business practices or different functions were more informal and that maybe was okay at the time. Um, but now seeing, you know, seeing implement, more informal implement, implementation of different policies and, and procedures or um, more formalized, um, you know, access to information uh, where maybe things were just you know, pulled together on a reactive basis, but now as a, as a result of, of needing to understand, um, you know, perhaps backlog or outlook for the business or cash flow, you know, really focused on putting, um, you know, policies, procedures in place or mechanisms into place to really measure performance and uh, to really better understand the business at a, at a granular a data, uh, data level. Um, but also some simple things too, of just seeing companies now as a result of this and a focus on cash flow, just increasing how frequently they send out invoices to their customers or, or, their, or to their clients. Maybe they, it was something they would only do once a month. And now, um, you know, because of the importance of cash flow, you know, increasing the frequency of that, which has then improved um, improved inflows of, of cash flow. Also more formalized budgeting so that, you know, as they make decisions and, and pivot during this uncertain time, uh, you know, better and easier to measure, well, how successful was that decision? And so uh, seeing some of that more formalized budgeting and financial processes has definitely been something, you know, seeing more of. And I think it, it just helps then uh, tell the story and and demonstrate you know how how they've been able to weather the storm thanks uh you know jason let's uh, turn the tables a little bit i'd love to ask you a question uh you know in terms of preparation what have you seen and what recommendations do you have for closely held business owners uh to think about before they um you know are looking at a potential transaction you know you and i have worked on uh, a lot of those uh, uh, transactions over the years. What's new, you know, what's kind of old that you can bring into it or new that you have to consider in this current environment? Uh, I think it comes back down to being prepared and in working with family business owners, you know, one of the things that they always want to do is mitigate taxes, whether they're income taxes uh, or uh, future estate taxes. And I always tell families that it is better to have a year, two, three years 
uh, of planning uh, out in front of a transaction uh, than to try and push up and do planning right when you're navigating through a transaction. So my number one uh, piece of advice is be ready. Be ready from you know a business perspective, as the gentlemen uh, on the panel were suggesting, but be ready from uh, a planning perspective. It, it's very difficult to mitigate taxes when you're uh, trying to implement structures uh, and tax planning uh, benefits right on top of the sale. So if you're out in front of that, you're going to get a whole heck of a lot more benefit. You're going to have more flexibility, and those types of transactions uh, are going to be uh, much easier to support uh, should there be a review by any taxing authority. So that's the first thing, be prepared. Uh, second thing that, you know, we've, we're at this really unique crossroads where we have a, a very high, from an estate tax perspective, very high federal estate tax exemption. We have uh, historic low intrafamily uh, lending rates. Now's the time to think about uh, how you might uh, structure your ownership of, of a closely held business if there's a sale a year or two or three years down the road. I suspect that um, those will change moving forward and they won't be as advantageous for families. Uh, and it's getting uh, a good group of advisors wrapped around you so that you can make thoughtful and meaningful uh, decisions with, uh, with structure. All too often, families wait until the last minute for, uh, for structure, and that can cost um, millions, if not tens of millions of dollars to families. What if they? What if you did procrastinate it, or a situation change, and you had you know three months or six months or anything that uh, folks should consider? Uh, it, it's always <clears throat> it's always a balancing act uh, about uh, the closer you get to the potential transaction, uh, and there are things that we will routinely uh, suggest to families to consider. Uh, and those will, those opportunities will start um, moving away or will we'll start um, to lose the opportunity to use some of those structures the closer we get. I'm, I'm of the opinion if we're six months or out, six months or farther out in front of a transaction, uh, that there's some good stuff that we can do. Uh, you get inside of six months of a transaction, uh, you got to be very, very cautious. And, and I, I'm sure everybody on this uh, call on the panel has had that client who said, I am never selling my business. Don't worry. I'm going to, I'm going to run this for the next 50 years. And then four months later, you get a phone call saying, I got an offer. I can't refuse. Um, so with, with entrepreneurial business folks, um, I continually encourage them uh, to consider ownership structures, uh, whether or not they intend on selling, because you just never know when, uh, when that offer, when that set of circumstances comes down the pike, and you just can't say no to it. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so, same question over to you, Jack. You know, what what are some key tips that you would recommend uh, to to sellers to, to help them get to the to the finish line? Well, I I, I wholeheartedly endorse um, the the uh, comments we just heard and. Um, Sellers or business owners ought to take take advantage of very high quality advice that's available from Boston Private. You know, within the organization, you have tax advisors and mechanisms that can be put in place in order to mitigate taxes. 
I also share uh, strongly the point of view that you're better off preparing well in advance of the anticipated transaction. If you think about it, you really ought to um, apply some of the rules that are applied to public companies who are focused on making sure they have good corporate governance practices in place. That means having updated records. Uh, that means having uh, updated files and uh, regular audits, maybe a, a periodic quality of earnings. Um, but the longer uh, before, the more time that you can uh, have to prepare for a transaction, the better off the shareholders and your family will be served. Uh, because well, I'll tell you an interesting or funny uh, story I heard uh, not long ago. A, uh, a business owner was asked if he had a partner in the business. He said, no, I don't have a partner. And the banker said, think about that again. You have a partner in the business. He said, no, I don't have any partners in the business. He said, well, when you sell the company, you're going to have a partner. And it's, that partner's name is Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is going to be looking for as big a chunk of the sale proceeds as he can get. So why wouldn't you do everything in your power to take the steps well in advance of the transaction to mitigate those tax consequences? One of the things that we insist upon at Capstone Headwaters is that uh, when we are engaged, we want slash require the business owner to talk to his or her advisors, financial, accounting, legal, and so forth, to ensure that uh, steps have been taken to mitigate taxes. Because to the point that was made earlier, you can't do these things the day before a transaction closes. So plan in advance, get your books and records in order, and uh, do it sooner rather than later. Great advice, Jack. Uh, Matt, uh, same question to you. What, what are some uh, a piece of advice that you would give to sellers? Yeah, I, I would say uh, maybe less, less tactical than some of the other advice, which I think is great, and maybe just more on the general approach. And, and I would just recommend being straightforward and say that's with your own people, your, your key people internally. Um, you know, bring them into the fold, let them know what you're doing. They're going to find out anyways. So, uh, you know, communicate, be on the front end of communication with your, your key managers. You'll have a better outcome in the end. Be straight with your advisors. Tell them everything. They'll help uh, you work through the best way to mitigate whatever <clears throat> weak spots there might be in the story. Be straightforward with the potential buyers that they'll appreciate it. You'll, you'll end up with a, a stronger hand and better options if you just tell people, you know, about the very positive aspects of your business, about some of the areas you're less certain on, about what you've tried that's worked, about what you've tried that hasn't worked. A lot of people try to cover that stuff up, make it all sound rosy, and I, I think it comes back to bite you in the end, or, or you altered part of a story that ends up falling apart later as you spend more time with people. So I, I would just recommend, um, you know, t tell everyone like it is, uh, help your advisors, uh, 
by telling them the truth and let, let them guide you in terms of how to present the more challenging aspects of, of what your story might be. Great. Thanks, Matt. Great advice. And uh, John, uh, from, from your perspective, what, what, uh, what piece of advice would you like to leave uh, potential sellers uh, in the, you know, in for a COVID post COVID world uh, on, on your end? Yeah. I mean, again, I think just echoing, echoing the comments about, you know, having, having a plan, and really trying to be more forward-looking and you know, planning for the future and evaluating or taking the time and making the investment now to evaluate the potential outcomes for you know, what that might be, whether it is you know, just putting in a mechanism to pass a business on from generation to generation or um, you know, do you have a management team in place so that you could step away from the business and it could just continue to run itself? Or you could have a management team in place that if you needed to step back, a private equity firm could come in and back that management team to help you with the liquidity of that. So really, you know, again, just, um, you know, trying to just be proactive, um, you know, under all circumstances. Great. Thanks, John. Well, uh, thank you, Jack, Matt, and John. Uh, and Jason and Will, uh, really appreciate everyone's thoughtful insights today. We certainly covered a lot of ground um, on on a variety of pieces of this uh, of this topic. So, if you'd like to get in touch with our guests, or if you have any questions, uh, do send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend you check out our website. You can find numerous resources. Sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast, and much much more in your inbox. Uh, and you can learn about how we help family offices and business owners uh, through these types of issues. Uh, that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. But that's it. Uh, thank you again to our panel. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, check back for a new podcast in about two weeks. Bye, everybody. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.